Fáilte. Welcome to Connected Communication, a podcast exploring the intriguing interplay between language, culture and the brain through the lens of self-awareness. I'm your host, Christine. Where are you from? Why? I can hear an accent. Are you from the north? I'm from Dundalk. No, we all have our problems. That might sound like a ridiculous conversation, but I've had that conversation with people all over Ireland. The further south I travel, the more often I have the conversation. The more often I see the head tilt back in suspicion. But what is it that they hear in my accent that makes them feel uneasy, uncomfortable? What is it about me telling them the name of my town that makes them say, Ah, we all have our troubles? What changes in them and in their perception of me after they've discovered where I'm from or even before they've discovered it and they've heard how I speak? We now know from recent research that accent bias is rife. Well, (laughs) we knew that already. We didn't need research for it. But because the world is designed in such a way that it is, research is necessary to prove the reality of a lot of people's lives. Once we have that groundbreaking research and those findings, then we know that accent bias is actually real and it does actually exist. And it does continue to block people from employment, to make them feel like they're less than or not good enough or secondary to other people and holds them back from living their true, full selves. Now, I'm not saying authentic selves, because as you'll hear us converse about today, authenticity is somewhat of a buzzword. Now, before you go switching off the podcast, I'm all about being authentic. If you've seen any of my content, you've heard me speak, you've seen my TEDx talk, you'll know that I'm vulnerable and authentic. But... What I'm trying to say here is that we hear this, be your authentic self all the time now. What does it really mean to be authentic? Does it mean that I can join a meeting and start screaming at everybody and wear whatever clothing I like in a boardroom, chew-chewing gum, flip my finger, shove my hand in other people's faces, put my feet up in front of them and just look like I can do and feel and be and have whatever I want? And say then to you, well, you know what? You show up as yourself. So I'm going to show up as myself and just being authentic. Or does it mean that we need to be a little bit more aware of what it means to be authentic and focus on, as my guest says today, authentic adaptability. Considering the appropriacy of situations before we go in guns blazing, deciding that our authentic selves are the ones that are acceptable in any given situation or circumstance. A lot's come up in the podcast episode today. It's October. It's Diversity and Inclusion Month. And what's often missing in diversity and inclusion policies, again, as you'll hear my guests talk about today, is linguistic and accent bias. One of the key areas that I am interested in from a research perspective and from an operational perspective, it's part of my model of neurocultural communication, language awareness, cultural awareness. And the opposite of that, of course, is lack of awareness, which leads to bias. 
if you listened to the episode last week, you'll have heard Rory, my guest, share her experience of being asked where her surname was from. And as a result, basically in no uncertain terms, being told that she wasn't going to be hired because she wasn't a native. Well, actually, what I've learned since is that she chose not to be hired also for that job. She allowed the interview to be cut short, probably shorter than it could have gone if she had been willing to stay and take that kind of behaviour. But this whole word native, with connection to language and land, particularly to language, really is... I think it deserves discussion. It deserves conversation. Constantly hearing this, but I'm not a native speaker. I can't do that job. I can't take that project. I can't lead this deal. I'm not a native speaker. I'm not able to do this, that or the other. I need to find a native speaker who's going to be able to do it better than I am. It's a buzzword. It's a, a word that's loaded with bias, a phrase, actually, for those of you who are listening, thinking it's not a word, Christine. It's a, it's a phrase. So fair enough. It's a phrase. Native speaker. The whole idea of native speakerism and accents, deciding and judging that someone is more or less capable of something because of their accent, needs to be addressed. It is something that we learn from birth, or not too far after birth which I'll talk about in a couple of minutes. But what we know is that because of unconscious bias, this unconscious bias that we learn, people, as soon as they hear an accent, do make determinations about other people. It starts when we're babies, like I said. They will decide that they're more trustworthy or not, that they are capable of doing a particular job or holding a particular role or not. They'll determine whether or not they want to be associated with them. It, to share another story with you, I was going to keep this one for next week, but maybe I'll share it now. Hmm. Will I? Right, go on, I will. Deciding whether you want to be associated with a person or not because of their accent. Now, this for me, this experience was a combination of accent and a piece of clothing that I put on. Years ago, when I was out in Dublin, I came out of a nightclub and I smoked at the time. And I was standing just outside the nightclub in front of the Hapley Bridge in Dublin. And I needed a lighter for my cigarette. So I went up to this fella and I asked him for a light. No bother. Gave me his lighter, lit the cigarette, started chatting to him. And at the time, I cycled everywhere. Generally, when I live in cities, I cycle. So I had my bike with me and it was winter time so i had my balaclava with me now when i say balaclava my cycling balaclava i'm going to need to give you a small bit of the stereotypical history of where i'm from i'm from a town called undock on the northeast coast of ireland which is known for having been the dwelling place of many ira members over the years and a place that is just below the border with Northern Ireland, which is which was a hotbed during the Troubles. And sadly and unfortunately, we experienced a lot of bomb threats growing up. My mum lived through through bombs in, in, in the town. And that's why the further south in Ireland I go, when people hear my accent, they think I'm from the north. Then they hear I'm from Dundalk. They, they judge me based on my town, based on the history. They, they make associations in their brains which is a natural tendency for the brain to do. That's why awareness is so important. But this lad, 
as I started to put on the cycling balaclava. Oh, I, I wasn't very clear there with the whole idea of terrorists and terrorism. The balaclava obviously was worn a lot by the IRA because they didn't want to be identifiable. So we take the, the name of the town, we take its history, we take its connection to the IRA, we take my accent and I'm me putting on this balaclava to get on my bicycle to cycle home at two o'clock in the morning. And as I'm putting the balaclava on, I've been talking to this fella for 10 or 15 minutes and no bother, him and one of his friends chatting away. As I'm putting the balaclava on, he looks at me and he says, where are you from anyway? I said, don't talk. Why? Started backing away from me, looking at me and then shouted amongst everybody outside the nightclub. Don't go near this one, lads. Don't go near this one, lads. She'll rob you. I will never forget it as long as I live. Live. So, yeah, they'll determine whether or not they want to be associated with you based on your accent, maybe based on a piece of clothing that you put on, based on the name of your town. There was research done by a UK agency called Creative Access, and it was done about people in the, in the creatives industry. They were working in PR and in communications. And when I was reading through the research about the perception of accents in communications, I started wondering, ooh, wonder how people are judging my accent when I do my communication content online. I was brought up in speech and drama. My mum was my speech and drama teacher. I qualified as a, a speech and drama teacher myself. I can put on a very perfect accent if I need and be very crisp and clear with my diction. But I can't be arsed, first of all, to do that all the time. Plus, I lose a part of my identity. Now, my accent isn't as strong as it could be, or may maybe if I hadn't grown up learning elocution and, and going through speech and drama. But it's taken me a number of years to be able to beat out of my own head that I need to sound perfect and crisp and clear all the time. And of course, I'll put it on depending on where I am and what I'm doing. If I were doing a podcast episode on articulation, I'll obviously be crisper and clearer when I work with clients and I teach them how to be more articulate with their diction and pronunciation. I'm obviously going to be crisper and clearer. My content in my online platform does a mix of all of it. Different accents, different Englishes, clarity and lack thereof, so that you can learn how to hear what you really hear on the street. Because fewer than 3%, I think 2% now, of the British population use received pronunciation. But that agency that did the research found that over 90% of the people who were surveyed believed that those who spoke with a received pronunciation accent were more likely to get work in their field. 77% said that they feel they must change their accents to be taken more seriously at work. And get this one, 35% of them were told to change their accents when speaking with customers or clients. Can you imagine your boss saying that to you? Uh, hello, you need to change your accent completely. Yeah, I can. I, I've heard it throughout my life because I was trained not to use the accent that was from the areas that I grew up in. And I didn't grow up completely in Dundalk. I was from a couple of other towns as well. I was taught to speak 
as best possible with a flattened accent because people will judge me less. So they're being told when you speak to X customer or Y client, change your accent completely. And instead of the bosses having the balls or the breasts, let's say if they were a woman, to turn around to the client and say, well, you know what? We don't do discrimination here. So maybe we're not the right fit for you. 89% of the people in their survey believe that others had made subconscious judgments about them based on their accent or how they speak. So think about it there in your life. Have you ever met somebody and felt that pinch in your ear? Or your shoulders maybe moved back a little bit, or your body inside curled up? You shirked away, your head twinged. Any of that ever happened to you because of the way a person spoke? Now, if you're listening to me and saying, no, no, that's never happened to me. I've never done that. Well, I call bullshit. It happened to me. And I'm very aware and very conscious of not being biased as best I possibly can. But I'm human. You may even, some of you, be judging me, hearing me use words like bullshit. I pulled myself back from using them in the first beginning of the podcast and the episodes. But... I'm Irish. We have a bit of flagrance for the L language. So I'm letting some of it come out a little bit. We'll see how it goes. I might pull it back in again in the future. As I say, I'm human. And this bias stems back to the fact that we're human. It goes back, actually, like I mentioned earlier on, as far as when we're babies. Now, I don't know how much you know about babies and their development in the womb. And I certainly don't know the physical understanding of the babies or their development in the womb but I do know that in and around it's I think it's 26 weeks if my memory serves me correctly they start to be able to discern sounds from the parent or from the outside and then they start to get the rhythms and the feelings that are coming through now obviously there's chemicals involved here as well of course but they pick up on the nuance of sound in the accent or the language that they're hearing so what some researchers found, and when I read this first, I thought, ah, it can't be possible because there's a particular word in it that I, from what I understand about babies, it wouldn't be possible. So let me tell you what it says first. A study published in PNAS, which the, the post I read didn't indicate the meaning of PNAS, said that babies as young as five months old tend to prefer the accents of native speakers as opposed to foreign ones. What word do you think bugged me in that one or that I didn't feel was realistic? It was preference, prefer. Babies don't have that prefrontal cortex, the front part of the brain developed yet where they can actually make cognitive judgments of what they, what they prefer. Not, so that part of the brain, the front front cortex, prefrontal cortex, is the part that we use to analyze and to judge and to discern and to determine. So I was thinking that it, it can't be a preference. And what I thought was it would be potentially linked to the threat response. So if you think about it, then say a baby hears an accent or a voice or a rhythm that they're not used to hearing. And babies, we know, need attachment, loving and safe attachment. 
So when they get that fear spiked by the threat, the threat is something that they don't know, something that makes them feel uncertain or something that they think will harm them. So their preference actually comes from a preference to avoid fear, which we are hardwired to do. Well, avoid threat, move away from threat towards reward. So move me away from that thing which I don't recognize, which makes me feel uncertain and detached and scared, towards the rewarding thing which makes me feel all loved and squishy and happy. The accent or the language or the voice or the tone. And that would also connect to energy, the feeling of energy from the other human being that they prefer. Let me go to that. That's the reward. So that's what I reckoned. And I, I looked into it a little bit. What I found was that some of the research done on preferences also talked about or also figured out that the preference that they had was towards information coming to them. And what it said there was that it's been well documented that infants have a preference towards someone speaking their native language as opposed to the opposite. And I'm using native language here to not go down the rabbit hole of me not liking native language. Okay, yeah, I'm just going to use native because that's what's in the research, okay? Even though I don't like it. Infants are, they have a preference to attend to or pay attention to someone speaking their native language. And that's been well documented. It's also been interpreted as something which is developmental to our tendency as adults to want to divide our world into social groups and similarity bias when we think about the seeds model from the, the Neuroleadership Institute, pre preferring members of our own group and disfavoring others. So that selection bias where we, if we walk into a bar in a new place and we're a white female, and I say we're a white female because I'm giving myself as the example here, I'm a white female who speaks English, who hears an Irish accent. What do I go towards? Most likely when I walk into a bar in a new place, I go towards the other white people who are speaking English, who probably who have a, a, an Irish accent. And if there's an Irish accent that I hear and an English accent that I hear, I'm going to go towards obviously the person with the Irish accent based on how our brains categorize ourselves in our social world. It's safer because we, we don't feel as threatened. We feel that we know the group or we understand the norms of the group already. But this new research proposed that the preference may originate from an infant's desire to acquire information. And I'm quoting a paper here in the, uh, it doesn't actually have the name, but it comes from a .gov website. Annie Ratak, I think is the name here. I don't like to, to use people's words and work without referencing them. So what they reckoned in their research was that infants have a desire to acquire information and that they potentially interact with social partners who are more likely to provide them with relevant learning opportunities. Ah, oh, they demonstrate that 11-month-old infants indeed expect to receive information from native as opposed to foreign speakers, suggesting that infants' selective social interactions may be driven by their motivation to learn. Well, let me tell you something about an experience I had in the summertime, which completely refutes this 
proposition or hypothesis. My sister has a baby daughter who's 15 months old and is in creche. And I stayed with her for the summer this year and I have a great bond with her daughter. We get on very well. But I brought her to creche one morning because my sister was sick and brought her up to the door and one of the women collected her and brought her in. The woman who collected her and brought her in, I, I don't know about her accent or anything like that because I didn't have a conversation long enough with her to know whether it sounds like less like a local accent from where she's from or not. But she went off straight in with her. And when I went to collect her, the same girl brought her out. Now, the girl, the, the woman, I should say, isn't uh, of Irish origin originally. And I'm pausing here and I hope you hear how I'm pausing because I'm, I'm selecting the words carefully. I don't want to be, I'm, I'm trying to avoid sounding biased or biased or being biased in the way that I'm, I'm explaining this lady. I don't know a huge amount about her. But what I do know is that when I went to take my niece from her to bring her to the car to go home, she went mental. My niece did. She didn't want to leave her. She did not want to come to me. She did definitely did not have a preference for any form of information or learning or uh, so-called native accent that I might be giving her. And she would have been very happy to stay with her typical caregiver in the middle of the day. And here's another thing that's interesting about that. Attachment theory. Another piece of research that I read talked about children that have a healthy attachment and that don't. And those that don't have a healthy attachment find it more difficult to connect with a different caregiver than that which they are used to. In other words, being a parent or somebody in the home. And what this demonstrated that day was that my niece has a perfectly fine capacity to attach to her other caregivers outside of the home. I had only just arrived back. She wasn't used to me being there yet. And so for her, it was safer for, for her to be with the people who were her attached caregivers and than to suddenly be put back into the arms of somebody who wasn't. Later, as I developed my relationship with her more over the summer, then it was completely different can hand her over to me and, and her mommy walks away or her mommy's gone somewhere and there isn't a problem with her at all. So this whole preference thing, it stems from the brain. It goes back to our brains as they have developed over time and the natural biases that are created in them. We calm when we're in safe places. There's a huge amount more that can be said about accent bias, the origins of accent bias, and a lot of other research and parts of the brain that I can talk about. But I'm going to keep some of it because, as I said, this is Diversity and Inclusion Month. To mark and acknowledge Diversity and Inclusion Month, the episodes all month are going to be with different people who are talking about accent bias from their perspectives, their experiences with thoughts and considerations on what we can do 
to mitigate some of the bias and how organizations can change their practices moving forwards as the world becomes more globalized. So I'm not going to go into any more of the research now. I will keep it, as I said, so I can talk to you a little bit more about things like stereotypes and how the brain actually feels when it's made to figure out what's happening behind an accent. Today, we do go into some of it with my incredible guest, who is one of the forerunners in the world on the topic of accent bias and whom I am most delighted to be connected with and to be working alongside uh, going down this road as we, we strive to bring these topics to organisations, bring them to the world and make accent bias part of diversity and inclusion policies, awareness of what happens behind a language, behind an accent. We talk about how Western leadership is equated with loudness, confidence, eloquence and visibility and how that mindset might not work in all organisations across different regions around the world. If I were to list all of the different things we talked about, I'd probably talk to you for as long as the actual interview went with her. So I'm going to give you a few little nuggets of the conversation that we had. We talked about how Western leadership is being dropped on the Eastern world and that leadership there in the Western world is equated with loudness, eloquence, visibility and confidence and that that might not work in all organisations across different regions. That the concept of psychological safety may not be a concept which is adaptable to certain regions of the world. We talk about cultural spillover and the necessity to, instead of allowing culture to spill over as a leader or an organisation, be able to step back, have the capacity to listen, to ask questions, to hear suggestions about what might and might not work in a particular location and find a way to be adaptable across cultures and countries and a way to move forwards. And that's a huge amount of the work that I do and the work that my guest does. We talk about being sent clients who aren't really global enough for our leadership roles. And when drilling down into the full understanding of that, it means they need to sound different. Their accent needs to be changed. We talk about the question, where are you from? The problems of being asked where you're from and how demeaning of particularly a woman's power it can be to be told that you're charming or cute or your accent is charming or cute in a business meeting. In fact, actually, and I didn't say this to, to Heather, but I'm thinking about it as I say this to you listeners, as I introduce her, just imagine for a second being in a business meeting and there's a man at the top of the meeting presenting, talking about whatever it is, his topic, and then suddenly somebody in the middle of the meeting, and he's speaking now in a, in a different language other than his, his first language, he's speaking in the local language of the area, and some other man pipes up in the middle of the meeting and says, oh my goodness, your accent is so cute. That would never happen. And yet it happened to my guest. She talks about how that experience helped her to understand or realise that she had won the linguistic lottery of birth. She was born into an English accent that was so widely accepted around the world and how that brought her 
towards doing the work that she does today. She mentions a lot of the concepts in her book, which is an excellent read, and you can find a link for in the comments or in the show notes. Microaggression and micro inequities. We go deep. We go deep on a lot of things. And like I said, I wasn't going to talk you through them all. So what I'm going to finish with is to ask you to do something as you listen today. Take pause. Reflect as you're listening. Have you been a victim of accent bias? Have you been the perpetrator of accent bias? What is it that you hear that makes you feel uncomfortable? What can you do next time you hear it to dampen the discomfort, manage the bias, so that the other person in your presence doesn't feel it? Heather and I had an incredible conversation. She even used the phrase, listen beyond an accent. Something which another guest who's coming on the podcast next week talked about in her TEDx. And I haven't even met her yet. Don't you love a bit of synchronicity, eh? So sit back. Well, if you're driving, obviously don't sit back or if you're cooking. But otherwise, if you're sitting listening, sit back. Open your ears. Open your mind. Stretch it beyond our accents, beyond our styles, beyond our names. Notice the judgments that come up in you as we talk. Because we talk a lot about cutlery as well. Might sound a bit odd, but it's a bit of a giggle. Recognize what's being sparked in you. And think about how the next time you're having a conversation with someone that sparks it, you can change your ways. Enjoy the conversation about accent bias and other inequities around the world. You're in the middle of a presentation in a business meeting. Suddenly, one of the men in the room stops it and says, oh, your Danish accent is so cute. Welcome to the show, Heather Hansen. Thank you so much for being here. <laughs> Thank you for having me. I'm so excited about this conversation, Christine. This is a long time coming. It absolutely is. Yes. <laughs> Was that the comment that sparked a career researching, investigating and supporting those who experience acts of bias? I think it was more my reaction to that comment that did, because my reaction was, you know, we can change to English if you'd rather. And it was the realization that by saying something like that, just how much privilege I had in the world, that I could say that, that I can go anywhere in the world, attempt any language and say, you know, if it's too hard to understand me, why don't we just speak English and I get all of my power back. I'm now the one in charge. I'm the one who's confident. I'm the one who's eloquent and I, I can control the situation better. And, and it was through that realization of, of just how much privilege I have being born into English and even more so being born into an accent that is so globally accepted. And that was what woke me up to what about the people who can't do that? What about the Mandarin speaker, the Thai speaker, the Indonesian speaker? They can't just say, hey, why don't we just speak Mandarin then? Uh, they aren't going to be able to do that. And I so that was what really made me say, I have to help those people to be able to compete in a world that is dominated by the native English speaker, 
that they can have a chance to compete, that they can feel as comfortable and confident in the way they're communicating in English as they do in their native languages. And that was really the fuel behind the work I do today. Fantastic. And mm-hmm. what was the reaction when you responded like that? If you don't mind uh, me well, asking. No, no that, it, it just continued like, oh, no, 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 no. You know, we love your accent. We, it's so charming. And, you know, it just was like a repetition of what you <laughs> just said. And, um, and, and that was, you know, frustrating um, because they don't really see it. And, and when people say something like that, they really do have fantastic intentions. They don't, they were trying to compliment me and say how wonderful my Danish was and how lovely it is to listen to me and, and how amazing it is. I speak so well, it's very rare. You meet Americans who speak a foreign language like that fluently, especially, you know, in the, in Scandinavia, it's not that incredibly common. And so they mean it 100% as a compliment, but what happens when you hear these comments day after day, after day, after day, you just realize I could live in Denmark for the rest of my life and I will never be fully accepted. I will always be the other. I will always be the foreigner. And it's not to single out Denmark. It would be this way probably anywhere in the world because accent bias shows up in every language, everywhere in the world for both the native, non-native divide, but also just within the countries themselves. So unless you're at the top of the food chain, like I am with my American accent, you know, and I mean, we could talk about the differences between our two accents and how differently we're treated in the world, right? Um, Yeah, that that's just given me an enormous privilege. So I try to use that privilege to lift those who aren't as fortunate in the linguistic lottery of birth. <laughs> oh, nice. The linguistic yeah. lottery of birth. Yeah. I like that. That's some <laughs> wording there. So you talk about that kind of continued comment. Oh, but it's really charming. It's really nice. And they're without realizing it, maybe digging their own grave of complimentary yeah. comments. In your book, you mentioned microaggressions, and I think you call them micro inequalities. Mm-hmm. Would that be an example of one of them? Yeah. Yeah, because what it's doing is it's singling out both the difference in the power structure that we have in that moment, and also it's making me the other. So it's making me smaller. And of course, saying a word like calling someone charming or cute in a business meeting, you know, it's really diminishing their power. So it was treating me like a child is how I felt. And so this, this is definitely the kind of inequity that we see when we move into these multilingual environments and the focus becomes the language instead of the meaning and the message behind it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. What other micro inequities are there then that you've come across or you see a lot? Well, language is so closely tied to every other area of diversity and inclusion. And this is why I talk about it so often is that you know, we want to protect race and age and gender, sexuality, all of these things. Yet we don't talk at all about accent and language. And that underlies all of them, all of them. So when we hear the accent, we're immediately placing them into all of those boxes. And then the minute we make a decision based on the boxes we place them in, that's when it can become discriminatory. And so we cannot talk about all of these areas of diversity and inclusion without looking at the language and accent underneath. And it's so much more than just using inclusive language. I mean, that is barely scratching the surface of it all. It's the foundation of diversity, equity, inclusion, which isn't included in any policies by any corporations I work with. Uh, so, So that is why it's just so, so important there that we focus in on those links. So someone starts talking, they say, oh, where are you from? And well, I'm from here, you know, I I was born and raised here. 
no, 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 no. But um, where are you really from? You know, we hear that all the time with the with as a racial comment, right? A racial microaggression. But we get exactly the same thing with an accent. Somebody says, you know, oh, where are you from? I could have been living in Denmark forever. And I can say, oh, well, I live in Odense. They'd be like, no, no, no. But I hear an accent. Where are you from? And oh, OK, so, well, <laughs> before that. OK, so it's pointing out that I'm foreign. I'm different. I'm other. And that's how it can show up. But it can be so closely linked to race or to age. You can sound older or younger. You your class, if you sound educated or not educated, this is much stronger throughout the UK where accent and class is really closely linked. Um, but but we're making all of those judgments all the time. And that's where the micro inequities come out is that we, we find the direct link to one of those. And so there's many, many examples of how language bias looks and sounds because it could also just be actions, right? Somebody is ignored all the time at the meeting or interrupted, talked over because maybe they're a little slower putting the sentence together, or maybe someone keeps correcting their pronunciation of every word and everyone else understood it. So these are also actions and things that could happen to make the person feel less than or othered in, in the meeting. Yeah, and it's funny that this presumption, and maybe it goes back to that linguistic lottery that you talked about, that it's okay for me to correct your pronunciation. Never mind one to one, but also in a meeting in front of everybody. Uh, can I go to the other question and ask you a little bit about your thinking on whether it's really that bad to be recognized as the other? What do you think when I say that? Not it's not necessarily bad. It's going to depend on the individual and the situation, I think. Um and also the way that you're receiving the comment, because to be other is also to be unique, right? So if you embrace that uniqueness, you can actually do a lot with being the other by, by standing out, being different from the group. If you embrace that and say, hey, I love it. That's fine. Great. Um, it takes a lot of confidence to be in that position, I think. And in a workplace, it can it can be really good, but it could also be really bad. It could cost you the next promotion because you're a little too different and you're not fitting into the culture and you're not fitting into the norms that are expected. And so and that's usually why people are sent to me is they're right on the cusp of the C-suite and they say, we want to make him CFO, but we're worried he isn't really global enough or he isn't really um, you know, eloquent enough. Or he doesn't have enough professional presence. He needs more gravitas. Like, what do all these words mean? Then when they, when I say, what does that mean to you? Tell me exactly. What is it we're trying to change? What do you want to see happen? What are our objectives? Eventually it comes out. Well, he just sounds too Singaporean. We need him to sound more like you. Oh, that's what we're really talking about. Okay. Uh, and so, you know, the great majority of my clients are victims of accent bias in, in the most discriminatory way, in the sense that if they do not change, they will not get the promotion or they will not keep their job. And, and I've seen both things happen where they actually do fire them or they are shown to really commit and, and they give them the promotion. So, so it's definitely something that happens and it's very, very real. And I think a lot of people who are you know, born into this beautiful accent win the linguistic lottery have absolutely no concept that this is happening that or that there's anything wrong with it because of course they need to be good communicators to be a leader because we equate leadership with eloquence and confidence and loudness um visibility 
And until we make some shifts in those mindsets, I think it's very hard for people who sound different than whatever the prestigious norm is for that company or culture. It's very difficult for them to advance. Mm-hmm. I agreed the same with my clients, exactly the same reason why when many of them come to me themselves or are brought to me, that block is there to getting to that next rung of that imaginary ladder that everybody talks about. Yeah. Uh, So it's a tricky one, isn't it? When you talk about not fitting into the norm of the organization and the the culture or cultures within the organization, because we might have an American firm that has bases in three or four regions and we've got one culture in the States, then a different one in APAC. And I know you're based in APAC, isn't that right? Yeah, in Singapore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I know I'm generalizing the, the whole APAC region there, but, but Singapore specifically you're in. So you have, you're in a very multicultural place, one of the, the most multiculturally diverse locations for global business that we see in, in the world today. What would you say are the key elements you notice about culture spilling out of, let's talk about the US for now, because that's where a lot of global business comes from, into regions like Singapore and the wider Asia-Pacific areas? And what impact do they have on those others holding my fingers up beside my head? And their careers? Well, what we see specifically in Singapore, but it's also true for Hong Kong and, and the other big cities here, is that a lot of the multinational companies who have their headquarters here in Singapore, for example, and that will be a regional headquarter for perhaps Southeast Asia, perhaps larger Asia Pacific. Um, we have an enormous number of Western expats who are called in to run these businesses, to lead these businesses, highly skilled, very well educated. Um, and we find that at the tops of many of these organizations are the cultures of these leaders coming in. And just the fact that we're bringing in those people is already showing that that is the ideal. That's the culture we're looking for. And of course, they have a huge impact on the way that the the company is run when they arrive and how they interact and what the expectations are for their people. And that's typically the first question I ask when someone comes to me or is sent to me. It's who are they reporting to? <laughs> like, who is the boss who is making this judgment call that they are not good enough? I want, where are they from? What languages do they speak? And what's their experience in Asia? And the, that's usually my very first questions because it becomes very clear, very quickly, the style of communication that one individual is looking for. And this is why, you know, for the first, you know, the last 15 years of my career, it's been like, I don't want to train you. I need to talk to your boss because that's where the problem is. You shouldn't need to adapt to the standard that is there. That boss needs to be a little bit more understanding of the way business is done in this part of the world and the way we communicate here and the way that you communicate. I mean, these are native English speakers who have grown up in Singapore, educated in English, speaking English, many of them speaking it at home as well, uh, speaking it full time in business and, and government. So. It's a very uneven balance. Um, And this is something that I hope to research even more um, as I begin a PhD in this area of accent bias. I really want to look at how is that playing out in the leadership of the multinational companies that are headquartered here? Uh, What are the real numbers around uh, the dominance of the Western culture versus 
you know, the majority cultures that we see in Southeast Asia. But for global business in general, because the language language is English, a lot of our Western culture comes along with that language. And the expectation that you perform in that language is is a very tough expectation to meet, especially if the expectation is the perfect English, which no one speaks. (laughs) So it's difficult. Absolutely. Yeah, I love that you said that. The perfect English, what is perfect English and where does it come from? You sometimes get someone saying, I want to sound like an American. Right. Which part of America are we going uh-huh. into? Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. well, I've had people, suddenly... say, people say to me, you know, oh, well, I want a British accent just like yours. <laughs> and I'm going. And th- this is that's the beautiful line, isn't it? Where you can then say, OK, let's talk about this and unpack it a little bit. So you mentioned they're bringing in the Western culture to the eastern part of the world. But then when we think about bringing in the Western culture, what exactly does that mean? Mm. It means showing confidence, speaking up in the meeting, being visible, being eloquent, having control of your language and words. Uh, It's this stereotypical um, Western mentality I mean, even concepts like psychological safety, which I even discuss in Unmuted, um, I am not convinced psychological safety and the concepts behind it is appropriate for Asia. I just don't believe that's appropriate. And I think there are probably better ways to interact and build teams and build the comfort in teams than placing this very, very Western idea of everyone speak up and be vulnerable and be honest and put your life on the table. I mean, we're talking about a culture where many children have never hugged their parents. Okay. And then we expect these, these people to be vulnerable and share their private lives. I was running a session just a few weeks ago where we were talking about how could we build more connection in the company and, and one participant from Egypt puts his hand up. He says, we need to have family days and barbecues and get everyone together. And the minute he said that, I saw two Singaporean women on the other side of the room just shrink and in their chairs like, no way. You know, and I looked, I said, what was that? What was that? What's your reaction? Say it out loud. And they said, there's no way I want a family day. I don't want to have my family involved with my, my working life. And that's private. It has nothing to do with what's going on here. And just... That was being too vulnerable. Um, my own assistant who's worked with me for three years, she's very, very clear with me that she wants a very strict line between her private life and, and our business relationship. And I have to be very careful not to cross that line because for me as an American, that's so normal. You know, we, we're vulnerable, we're open, we talk about everything. We, you know, those lines just blur. Um, so, so I'm very cognizant of how we take Western ideals and, and they get just dropped onto Asia with an expectation that they should accommodate us. And uh, even you probably saw this too on LinkedIn recently. Uh, one of our colleagues posted about a company in Korea that is having everyone take on English names as nicknames. Yes, I have this <laughs> as a note as a potential topic oh, of conversation. You? Yes. But- yeah. And that really doesn't sit well with me. It right, really I'm does. with you there completely. Yeah. I understand the thought process behind it, that if you take on a name, it allows you to kind of forget your old identity and take on a new one. Um, But why should it be a Western name and why should it be a more Western identity of making a horizontal organization 
why do we think that's going to work in a Korean cultural uh, situation? So, so it's those kinds of mixing and trying to create these multinational organizations and teams across borders, cultures, languages, where we can easily run into trouble very quickly uh, without having a more open mind around what would actually work for this culture and how could I make them feel safe? And, and I don't have the answers. I, I'm working through this, you know, um, but, but I think we need to try and, and listen a little bit more and be more curious to other options. Absolutely. Listening is the key, isn't it? That culture active platform that I mentioned before we actually hit record may very well be something that could assist you in in the research that you're doing. The reason I say that is your mention of the blurring of social lines and bringing that Western culture in, because as we know, not all Western cultures even are the same. Some have that mix of social and professional. Well, we... I get that we generalize as well and we need to 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 bring it in with the confidence, with the speaking up, with asking questions. But that blurring of social line can even go down right to the individual after having experienced different countries. I lived in China, for example. After I lived in China for a year, I was never the same again. Nothing was the same about me. And I remember that first experience of taking nicknames or taking English names. And having a guy in my class tell me that his name was Big Ride. And in Ireland, and excuse my bit of uh, <laughs> sexual innuendo here, but a ride is somebody who's generally a woman and is very attractive and someone that you might like well, to have oh. relations with. So a big ride is... It, not the, necessarily the nickname you want to take on. If not necessarily the nickname exactly that you want to take on. Yeah. But I couldn't and I wouldn't in the class say to him, this is what this means. OK, where did you get that from? From a video game. Oh, where's the video game based in America? OK, I get it. And it was t- something to do with the carnival. So a big mm. ride in the carnival. Yeah, a big ride. How interesting. Yeah, this is it. Uh, so the nickname thing. As you say, taking on the new identity, why should we have to take on a new identity? Then that creates this whole concept of needing to be the other. What do you suggest companies do to start the conversation about what is psychological safety, maybe, and its and the meaning mm. in different parts well, of the I world? Think- yeah, I think we're we're also steps behind in in Southeast Asia anyway around diversity and inclusion, vulnerability, openness, psychological safety. These ideas, concepts are just starting to be talked about out here. There's still a very big um, gap there, and and the hierarchy is still very very strong. Um, and I, I think we're going to see more and more talk about it. I think it's coming. Uh, but again, it's another very Western idea. You know, this is coming out of the U.S. and the Me Too movements and Black Lives Matters. And um, and yet, you know, Singapore has lived here as an incredibly multicultural com- country that has been peaceful for many, many years and probably is um, a perfect example of how you can have racial harmony in a country uh, it's not perfect, but, you know, we we have people from all over the world and everyone respects the differences. And that's what's really special here. Um, 
So, you know, to even bring up these conversations, I mean, I was just talking with a client a couple of weeks ago and we were planning a full program just on accent bias. And then we brought in a few other people from the organization and they said, you know, I don't think our, our culture is mature enough for that yet. And I said, well, what have you done so far on DEI? And they said, nothing. Like we haven't even talked about this. I said, oh, well then scrap that. (laughs) There's no way we're going that deep. We need to start at the very foundation. We need to start with unconscious bias and and becoming more self-aware and understanding the cultural differences that we face and and why someone you might react negatively to one, um, you know, communication style or personality and, and you feel closer to someone else. You know, I mean, there's just so much that has to be discussed before we can even get to psychological safety or to. Um, you know, speaking up and and all of these and being vulnerable, heaven forbid, that it, it just goes very much against um, a lot of a lot of the culture that we we find here. Um, so so it just starts with the basics and and being curious and really listening to the people of where they are in the organization and its baby steps. Um, if you feel that that's the right direction of change, and again. I'm not 100% convinced it is. I, I think there's a lot of comfort that comes from the hierarchies that that are here and the power differentials and the way you respect others and and that you know just because it isn't the Western way doesn't mean it's not necessarily going to work and it it does work you know um, so so I struggle a lot I struggle a lot with that um, trying to see both sides of that equation absolutely I, it's been that way for many many years more than it has been in the West. And even in the West, we have places like Mexico where there's a very hierarchical culture in organizations. So you do look up to your boss. It's not that same egalitarian way. So we've got this whole blend across the world where one isn't necessarily right or wrong. Well, I enjoying the podcast, hey? It's a really good episode, like. Oh, it's brilliant. <laughs> Jamie, I tried the Sky accent there. I don't know. But I didn't do it very well. So I'll come back to my normal accent. But what happened in your brains when you heard me come in with the well? Did it make you feel uncomfortable? Did I spark a little bit of unconscious bias in you that you can take away as a reflection from the podcast? I hope you're enjoying listening to the two of us and the conversation. If it does spark any memories for you, any stories you'd like to share, please do give me a review or find me on social media and let me know. I'd love to hear your shares. It really does mean a lot when I know that people are are taking something away from the podcast. As a side note, don't forget that if you are somebody who wishes to develop your public speaking skills, your vocal production, your understanding of how to use inflection like a magical wand to manipulate the tone in your voice to be able to resonate and connect deeply across audiences from a professional speaking perspective, whether it be in the workplace for a presentation or on stage, or you'd like to adjust your pronunciation a little bit, not to change your accent, but to be more articulate when you speak, or you'd like to develop more awareness from a brain-friendly communication perspective understand how to manage small talk, to steer conversations with your very fast dominating, um, maybe American managers, 
don't forget that you can join the Connected Communication Club. The link is in the show notes. I have put it at a ridiculously low price, in all honesty, for myself. I went against what I had decided before, and I decided to drop it even further, at least for 2023. Let's see how we go for 2024. It's a monthly fee that, if you can afford it, will not only help support me in my production of this content and bringing on fantastic guests like Heather, but will also give you access to over 140 sessions of training that as long as I'm being uh, successful and steady and consistent with the podcast and you guys keep listening, I will be able to continue adding to because I haven't added 50% of what I have and there's already a crazy amount of it there. So when you're finished listening, have a look, jump over, Connected Communication Club. Let's make ourselves a collective. Let's share stories together, trials and tribulations, help you develop and help you become whatever kind of speaker it is you want to be at work, at home, across cultures, countries and companies. Now, vamos, let's go back to Heather and continue listening as she tells us a bit more about meeting her great dame and other cultural stories. Can I ask you, what would you say to someone who says, but we are all different and I'm never going to see everybody equally? And that's the way that we are naturally as human beings. There has to be inequality. Hmm. I think people really like to grab on to the whole nature concept, right? That we're hardwired to be this way. We're hardwired to want to be with and work with people who look, sound and act like us. And that's just the way it is. And therefore, I don't need to be open or curious about others. I don't need to make an effort to work with others because it will never I'll never like them the same way. And and I think that's a cop out. You know, that's just a a silly excuse in, in my mind, because we aren't cavemen anymore. You know, it's not that anyone who looks or sounds different is a threat. That's absolutely not the case. We're all modern uh, educated human beings, you know, at the pinnacle of, of achievements, you know? And, um, so, so I find that to be a very low level excuse for not making an effort to get to know other people and to understand differences. And, and there are some people who simply aren't open to that, but I think they're going to have more and more problems in global organizations if they can't begin to change that perspective. You think this is all as a result of globalization, these changes and the need for this change in places that were doing quite well before anything globalized? That's a good question. I mean, we can go all the way back to colonization, you know, way before sort of our modern globalization. Um, And that was a situation where it was sort of forced now we're in more of this imperialism, linguistic and cultural imperialism, where it's these, you know, American films and media and music. I mean, it used to be everybody wanted the British accents. Now, more often than not, it's like, no, 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 we want to work with you because you're American. Right. And so, again, my my prestige is actually increasing as um America's power increases, although we could see a very quick swing in that. <laughs> I think that's changing very quickly. Uh, but but still people, you know, idolize the the actors they see in the films, the music, the 
you know, America still holds a place in a lot of people's hearts when they're learning the language and the culture. Um, so I think it's, it came way before modern economic globalization, but you know, we've been on this path for a long time. And when we look at things like DEI, I mean, we see those movements starting just within the United States um, and with people who were born and raised there. And so, so we see a lot of those movements happening without thinking about really the globalization aspect of that. Uh, but I think more and more as the world, it doesn't matter where you are in the world, the world's coming to you. You can sit in your, in my hometown in California in your living room and never leave. And the world is coming to you through your screen, through your zoom calls. Uh, so you have to start thinking about the world differently and gaining these adaptability skills to be able to succeed in a, in what is now a very global world. If you want to be in that globalized culture and in that, in those organizations, two things come up for me while you were speaking there. Which one do mm. I go for? Mm, right, go I'm going to fire with the, the Irishness that got sparked in me when oh, you, you talked okay. about the wanting the American way. Do you think that is equal in Europe and in Asia? Probably not. Um, but it's it's hard for me to say. I mean, when I lived in Denmark and was in Europe, the typical standard is going to be British English is closer. Right. I mean, it's it's what people grow up with. Um, Asia, it's changing. So it used to be British English 100 percent. And then also because, you know, Singapore was a British colony, they're still taught British English in school. That is the the ideal. Um, but culturally speaking, and the younger generations coming up have all been raised on YouTube and Netflix and so it's been a very strong shift just in the you know, 15, 16 years I've had my business here. I've watched that shift in the upcoming gener generation. Um, you, I'm sure, would know better than me the, the attitude and feeling there in Europe. Um, and, and I'm interested if you know, Brexit had anything, made any change to that or not, or maybe brought up new discussions around other languages and, and their power in Europe. Um, but yeah, that that's sort of my impression. But what what's what's your feeling on that? I'm also the curious. reason I ask it is from my experience. Now I, I can't blanket everybody. Of course, there are going to be people who agree and disagree with what I say, and we do have a heavy American presence, particularly in big tech and pharma in Ireland. But there's often a tendency in Europe not to connect as well with American presenters, American speakers, Absolutely. because they're too high mm -hmm. energy. Yeah, it's just too, too, too loud, too smiley. Oh, I <laughs> smiled way too much for Europe. Believe me, I was not allowed to smile. I <laughs> smile way too much for Europe. It's just too big, too much, too big of gestures. And, and to be honest, after 20 years abroad, it's way too much for me as well. Um, wow. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Big time. I, I can't stand it. Isn't that <laughs> very interesting? Yeah, but there's a very um, strong reaction from Europeans from that perspective for, for presentation style and speaking style. Um, yeah, definitely. That I definitely noticed living in. And, and also, you know, um, sales, this you know, I think Americans are seen as very salesy, the, the way we communicate, how direct we are, how we're able to um, talk about our accomplishments, our achievements, that we celebrate success. That was also massively taboo in Denmark, you know, in a Scandinavian culture, very, very taboo. And that was a massive cultural difference that I had difficulty with 
because I do very much believe in celebrating success and sharing that. And uh, but from many of my friends perspectives there, it was seen as arrogant and bragging and too much and over the top. And you think you're better than everyone. And whereas for me, it's like I want to hear about everyone's success. I want to celebrate you. I want to hear what you're doing um, because it's inspiring for me. And and that's a massive difference. But yeah, these kinds of cultural differences for sure, you know, in speaking style and, and the way we, you know, present ourselves, there's, I would say, absolutely. Europeans don't want the Americans so much. No. Yeah. But you make some great comparisons there or, or points, mm. in particularly that kind that idea of the tall poppy syndrome that they call it in, in Australia yeah. Or I learned this week what it's Yentalon. called in Sweden, actually. Yentalon. Yentalon, that's it. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the same in Ireland, but in Ireland we call it begrudgery. Yeah. <laughs> so you, begrudge, you begrudge others any success, don't you? Be going around there shining yeah. your lights on anybody else. Yeah, right. But I'm with you. I don't mm-hmm. know if that I've Americanized my thinking a little bit or found a different script for some of my stories. And I often ask people, what what are you proud of achieving this week? And it's incredible how difficult it can be to get somebody to say, I did this and I'm really proud of having done it. Yeah, which I do. I, I'm with you on maybe bringing in change in that if we can, because it doesn't have to come from a place of ego and belittling of others. It's more the impairment of, of self and I'm bringing in that self-belief. So you talk about a lot of things in your book. It's it's great. And I love the connections that I find with it in terms of the model that I'm developing. It, it's it's so similar and, and connected, I should say, for one of your, your C's of communication and the title of this podcast. So you, you mentioned something in it that I'd like to ask about if I can. People using authenticity as an excuse. Talk to us a little bit about that. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, I, your I, jaw changed there. <laughs> a little bit of frustration coming out. I really, yeah, I really don't. I don't like when people use authenticity as a way to be a jerk. <laughs> you know, well, this is who I am. I'm just being authentic. This is how I speak. This is how I interact. This is me. And deal with it. And, and I think a lot of people have tried to use authenticity as their armor to say, well, this is me. Why don't I get to show up for work authentically? If you get to be authentic, you, then I get to be authentic me. And we both have to just deal with that. Don't we? And that's not what authenticity is about, That is it's just not it. <laughs> and so I like to talk about authentic adaptability where we, you know, are able to stay true to our values, our value system. And yet we're able to adapt our behaviors to, to be appropriate in different settings so that we're still respectful. We're still professional. We still need to meet certain standards and expectations for the different groups that we're in. I mean, my authentic self at home with my family is very different from what I feel is my authentic self on a stage speaking, right? Or in a business meeting, Uh, I am still bringing my authentic self to the table, but the way that I change my behavior, my vocabulary, my speaking style, my all of that, that is very adaptable. And I will change that depending on my audience who I'm speaking with. Um, But my values remain. And I think that's what's really important. So authenticity, I think people use that to just treat people badly. And buzzword, and, isn't it? Yeah, it's a buzzword. Yeah. 
And so then let's look at the other side of it. You talk about inauthentic adaptability. Mm-hmm. How can someone recognize if they might be behaving in an inauthentically adaptable way? If I switched my word forms correctly there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, sometimes we go over the line. We're trying so hard to fit into some specific culture and we end up doing things or behaving in ways that do cross the line of our values or our personal boundaries. And, and that's where it gets really toxic. That's where it gets difficult. This is when people stop wanting to participate or go to work or, or feel like they're out of alignment with themselves. And so if you're being forced to do something that is out of integrity and integrity is really important to you, you know, and, but the company culture is, is treating their clients a certain way, or, you know, that clients are getting stuck in this sales clause and yet you're a part of that. And that goes against your values and you're doing all you can to fit in and, and work hard and still sell knowing that this clause is in the contract and they're getting tricked. You know, that eventually is just going to run you down so much. And, and that, that inability to, to bring those concepts together, you, you, you can't function in that state for an extended period of time. And people who do end up burnt out and leaving and, and upset. And, you know, I think we saw this through the pandemic where everyone woke up and thought, wait, what am I doing? Like, why have I been bending over backwards to use a great idiom, you know, doing everything in my power to, to climb this ladder to success and half the things I'm doing, I don't even agree with. And, and it goes against everything I stand for. And I think that's when we had that, you know, great awakening to, to start, moving out of positions and roles and environments that didn't fit us. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned their great awakening. I know you talk about self-awareness a lot Mm -hmm. in the book and that being the cornerstone, the same as my work. It's the first pillar of of neurocultural communication, self-awareness. How can people start to develop their self-awareness regardless of where they are in the organization, at the top, in the middle, in the different, different areas? Mm -hmm. I think self-awareness is something we can work on our whole lives and still not achieve it. You know, we, even when we think we're self-aware, we typically aren't, um, you know, even that I know I have a loud voice in the room and I try to pay attention and give everyone a chance. And, but I see myself still falling into bad patterns. You know, we, we try our very best to be self-aware, but there's always ways to improve that. But the first step I believe, and it's the reason it's chapter one of the book is the question, who are you? What do you stand for? What are your values? Do you know what they are? And it's interesting because I'll ask that question to audiences. It's even a a poll question in the unmuted assessment, which is a free assessment linked to the book. And people's, the score on that is so high globally. And I'm thinking, that's just not true. Like you're lying. (laughs) I, I do not believe that 77% or whatever the global rank is right now on my assessment um, are saying that, yes, they can name their three values off the top of their head. And, and then, because then if I follow that up in live training, I'll say, okay, write them down. And then I see everybody going, "Uh." (laughs) well, I thought you said you knew them. And I I think we tend to believe that we do know our values and it's like, well, I'm a good person and I have show respect. And I have integrity and it's like, okay, so what does that mean? Like, what does that actually mean? Tell me a story of when you demonstrated that. Tell me a story of when you didn't demonstrate it. Um, and so I try to go a step further and have people really think about their life experience and big choices they made in their lives. And what value were you living in that choice? What were you 
valuing more than something else when you made a decision to take an action that was life-changing for you? Because that's where we find what we really value. When, you know, I've always thought that I value education more than anything in the world. And yet then I met this gorgeous great Dane, the the human kind, not the animal kind. And, <laughs> My um, brain did go there for a second. <laughs> and, and suddenly going to law school in America no longer mattered. Oh. <laughs> and I was going to move to Denmark instead and give up that dream and completely change course. I mean, if I hadn't met my husband, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. I'd be a lawyer somewhere, or I would have spent all this time in law and then probably realized somewhere down the line that it was out of alignment or I was doing things right that weren't authentic to me or being forced into situations uh, that I didn't agree with. And I probably would have left and gone into language. So at least that's in my mind why, what I imagine would have happened. But, um, but yeah, so, so thinking about those big choices you make in life and what were you valuing? When did you live that value, not just talk about it? Um, and just that in itself is a massive self-awareness exercise of, wow, I really thought integrity was big for, a big, big deal for me. But then, yeah, I did do this one thing once where I chose to do something that really was out of alignment with that. And maybe it's something else I was valuing in that moment. And why is that so important to me? And yeah, you know, maybe you chose loyalty over integrity. That's one that comes up a lot. So is it integrity you value or is it loyalty that you value? And what will you do for loyalty? Um, it, so, so this is all just the basis of the self-awareness because then you know when you are adapting according to values or, or out of alignment with them. Uh, but you have to know that first. And then I would say the next step is then becoming much more self-aware from a cultural standpoint of, of your own personality, your, your cultural biases, how you have been raised identifying and understanding the influences in your life and the filters through which you view the world. And they're different for everyone. And like you said, you know, living in China for a year completely changes you. And it does depending on where we live. And, you know, I go home and everyone thinks I'm crazy. I talk funny. I'm so different. I, I act different, behave different. They don't like the way I eat with a fork and knife. What I now believe is the proper way to have manners and cut your, you know, <laughs> with my fork in the left hand and my knife in the right hand, and they never get put down, you know. And okay. I go home and everybody cuts up all their meat and then they put their silverware down and then they take their fork in the right hand and they eat, right? Oh, right. So okay. And that was one of the first things people noticed when I went home. It was like, oh, but you think you're like so proper now. You sit here and eat with your knife. <laughs> it was so kind of. It's, that's the British, tiniest little uh, thing, isn't it? Littlest thing. Yeah. Littlest. And, and it makes a difference because you're at a dinner party and, you know, I'm knocking people differently or they're knocking me because we aren't doing the same things. It's like sitting with a right hand, left hand, you know, and you're kind of always bumping each other. So people get really annoyed with me. And it's, it's just funny. Simple little things like that. Yeah. But um, for me, I guess somehow that if we were to look at the values, right, something about what I now believe are, are manners or maybe it's showing some kind of class or maybe I, I don't know what it is that drives that or if it's just comfort now. Um, but probably something from my youth watching some movie where I thought they were very high class to eat like that. Um, but that overshadows my cultural connection to the American eating style. I have no idea, but because it's very hard for me to move back to that now. And my kids have been raised to eat like that too. Isn't that funny? Yeah. So strange. So for mm -hmm. anyone who's listening, who doesn't necessarily know what we're talking about, it, we're talking about the use of forks and knives and cutlery here. Yeah. And you're making me think about my mom. Uh, 
definitely left and right. She actually pointed out something that I do with my fork recently that I apparently have never changed doing, which I'll tell you in a minute. But listeners, what we mean is that in uh, etiquette with eating with a fork and knife in certain parts, I'm going to say certain parts because it's not necessarily everybody in Ireland who who eats like this or everybody in the UK. But the typical etiquette is to hold your fork in your left hand, your knife in your right hand, and you hold them in in a particular way and you cut your piece of meat or your potato or something, and then you lift it with the fork and it, using your left hand. I know a lot of people who eat with their fork in their right hand. I'm a left-handed person anyway, Kitog, as we call it in Ireland, so it's never going to move out of my hand, my left. But apparently, what was it she said I do? Oh, yeah. Uh, now this makes total practical sense to me. You can tell me if it doesn't to you, but I cut. And then if I'm eating something that doesn't require being poked with a uh-huh. fork, but it makes more sense to lift like with, with a good. spoon. Yeah. So I, I turn my fork and I lift it so I can get the whole mouthful into my mouth. Mum mm-hmm. said to me recently, I just still do that. My, because she puts, it up onto, she puts it up onto the back, right? Uh, yeah, with, with slide it up onto the back. It's ridiculous yeah. in my brain. Yeah. Why would you put yeah. that? You have to balance it. I know. And I mean, that's like a whole nother level as well. You know, so in the beginning, I only just scooped it onto the fork because that was like the best I could do. Now I'm moving into like super level where I put it onto the back because that's more the Danish way of showing of showing etiquette is to put it on the back. And I remember seeing my husband do it going, what? I mean, this almost caused an argument in the beginning of our relationship because we went out to eat. He ordered a hamburger and ate it with a fork and knife and I almost strangled him almost strangled him <laughs> like right. pick it up with your hands let it run down your arms and, you know, eat it properly i can't even watch you <laughs> medieval knights kind of thing pick up that chicken <laughs> you're supposed to be a viking come on even true from danes and there's all of everything we've just been saying in the past two and a half minutes so many different biases that we have so many just from our, our cultures from our lives and our experiences that we may giggle at, but somebody listening might get a little bit upset by. Mm-hmm. But that brings me into, we've just got a couple of minutes left and I'm conscious of your time. The last two questions that I have. One is, how can we help each other unmute? As you talk about mm-hmm. us unmuting and, and speaking mm-hmm. up or in whatever mm-hmm. ways works for us. How can we help each other? So that's a really great question. I love that question. And, and it comes down to being allies. Right. Of being aware, self-aware, but also aware of the room. Who has been speaking? Who is not? Who is interrupting? Who just said something and who just stole their comment and took it on as their own? Stepping in for people and being an ally for them to say, wait a second. Yeah, I think she just said that. <laughs> That's ex- how does it how is this different than what she just said? Because I thought I just heard her say that, you know, those kinds of of courageous acts of coming in and supporting someone, lifting them up or inviting them into the conversation. If you know that there's someone in that circle who really does know something they should be sharing and they aren't sharing it, they might just need that invitation. It's, hey, you know, I know you've been working really hard on this and you know a lot about this subject. Do you have anything to add here? And inviting them into the conversation. You know, we all have to work on that. I I've seen um, in, in other thought leadership and articles written, things like that is often placed on the shoulders of the leaders to play that role in balancing for inclusion. But 
I strongly feel it's all of our roles that it, you don't have to be the leader of the meeting to be more inclusive and to support and encourage and invite people in and be more aware and conscious of the conversations that are being had. And I think that's the, the best and really the only thing we can do at this stage to help one another to speak up and, and to have their voices be heard. And, and sometimes it just needs that little bit of encouragement and support to help someone get there. Absolutely. I mm. agree with you completely. A lot of things come up there now. And I, I said to you before we started recording, we're going to end with something that means you need to come back. So neurodiversity yeah. and things like alexithemia and aphantasia, those, yes. those things oh where people gosh. don't have the capacity come up for me now. But we'll park yeah. that or pause yeah. that for the next conversation. Mm. Now, you're the first person that I know has an answer to this. Because <laughs> I hope I have it now. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I know you do because of your book. The podcast, this is the last question. And I ask everybody who comes on with no judgment from me, purely because of my interest. The podcast is called Connected Communication. What does connected communication mean to you? Oh, I love that question. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, For me, I think it is about communicating what we authentically believe and listening in a way that enhances understanding. So listening beyond accent, beyond language, beyond visual and, and vocal style to really understand a person and connect with them, with the meaning that they are expressing. And, and I think that's the only way we can be truly connected. So, so for me, it's very much about feeling that you can authentically express yourself and know that the person listening to you is listening for understanding and to be connected with you, that you want to connect. And that, I think, is a choice we all make as well. Thank you so much. I absolutely love that conversation. Is there anything you would like to add before we come to a close? Oh, wow. I mean, we we go way back to the good old clubhouse days and we've had so many amazing conversations about these topics. I'm so happy that we could finally make this happen and and go a little bit deeper on some of these things. And I look forward to every opportunity to do this again with you. Um, and yeah, I look forward to it. So I hope the listeners enjoyed and, and took away something meaningful as well. Yeah, likewise. And I, I haven't said this to you directly yet, so I'm going to add it in if that's OK. If, I don't think you realize the impact that you had on my life by sharing the link for Clubhouse in 2020. That was when it was still closed off and it was invitation only. And you shared yours publicly on that's LinkedIn. Right. Yes. yes. And. It was 2021, actually, I think it was rather than 2020. In that year, I was living in that very toxic relationship that I was still in and very sick during the year. And I think a week or two after you shared that link, I joined Clubhouse and I met the coach and the spiritual guide who would ultimately be in groups that supported me to four months later leave that relationship. So in effect, you doing that helped me to save my life. And oh, I will forever be grateful to you for that. Oh, gosh. I really mean it. Wow. That's amazing to hear. And it mm. just goes to show how you never know with the smallest actions, how you could change someone's life and impact them. That yeah. is so amazing. And I'm so glad we were connected on LinkedIn, that you saw that link, that you got that link, that, wow. Yeah. And now we're here. Talking about we're two here. things that are so close to our hearts. And that hopefully as we continue to grow and and share with each other and develop our own research and knowledge, 
will help change the world. Yeah, thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure to have you here. Listeners, uh, you will find all of Heather's links in the show notes. I recommend reading her book, Unmuted. It is absolutely fantastic. It will help you, if you're ready for it, to become more self-aware and start going on that reflection journey towards more inclusivity for yourself and for others. If you have taken anything from the podcast, please don't hesitate to contact me. Contact Heather if you can get her. She's a busy lady, but I know she'll do her best to come back to you as as quickly as possible. And other than that, please review, rate, share and like the podcast. Until next time, Banak Thank you so much, Heather.